0: This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, a podcast about found object consumables. Is that green glue safe to eat? Why not try it and see? Today's discussion covers the popular genre of true crime. We are joined by the star of the new television series, My Life is Murder, the one and only Lucy Lawless. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, philosopher wannabe and a loner who mostly keeps to himself, but seems pretty ordinary until you look in his basement, because there are a lot of musical instruments.
1: I'm Erica Spires. Join me. Perhaps you may be able to help solve
2: a mystery. And I'm Brian Hurt. And if I'm going to be on a true crime podcast, I'm just glad I'm not the subject of serial.
3: Hi, I'm Lucy Lawless, and I love uh, true crime, always have, and now I'm working on a true crime drama, not a true crime, fake crime drama. And I'm a court watcher. Court watcher? Yeah. Mm. This one time when I found myself unexpectedly without work, I was like, what shall I do today? I'll fulfill that childhood dream I had when I was eight. I'll go sit and watch a myrtle trial. So I did, and it started something that I continued in the States, and I might even go down tomorrow and see if I can get into the Jeffrey Epstein bail decision. See if I can weasel my way in somehow. Yes!
0: you got to position yourself so you're on camera directly behind somebody that they're filming, like in the Brett Kavanaugh thing when uh, Alyssa Milano's face was poised there the whole time.
2: Oh, how did I miss that? Wow. Now, it's my understanding that most of the time being in court, it's pretty boring and there's not that much going on. I know from being on jury duty that it was deathly boring. Do you have to be pretty picky and choosy about what you go to to make sure you're getting all the juicy bits?
3: It's never boring to me and I have a remarkable tolerance for the minutiae and um, the boring bits. But what is even more interesting than testimony to me is like the voir dire, because you learn things about the community that you just didn't know existed. For example, in Shreveport, Louisiana, I was in the parish, Caddo Parish, which meets out more death penalties than anywhere else in Louisiana, and therefore the world, right? The murder, capital punishment, capital of the world. And I became good friends with a judge, but Watching the voir dire, you would see that two out of 14 people had not one but two major crimes in their families. So they'll bring them in 14 at a time and, and test them. Then they've got another bunch that they'll bring in, try to get a jury. So one guy said, oh, I'd like to be questioned outside the presence of the rest of the jury, and another woman did. And the guy said, oh, I have to tell you, my uncle was a judge and he's in federal prison for racketeering, and my father was shot and murdered while washing his car one Sunday morning. And I'm a teacher, so please don't um, pick me. And they were like, yeah, we totally want you. Mm -hmm. And then another very stately older woman with a salt and pepper bob came down and was questioned out of the presence of the rest of the jury, but not out of the presence of a ghoul like me. She said, my son is in prison for child rape. And I'm just feeling like, oh my God, Lucy, you are such a bad person sitting here listening to this poor woman. And she said, and my aunt was kidnapped and murdered last year and her trial is coming up in November this year. In front of what judge, madam? Oh, in front of this judge here. And um, (laughs) they picked her too because both of them were intelligent, educated people who would not be prejudiced if indeed the defendant was African-American. They just want good thinking people. Anyway, that was my, it was so fascinating.
2: We are minutes into the podcast, and Lucy has mentioned child rape twice now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Did I really? Oh, what? I didn't. I just said Jeffrey Epstein. Does yes, that qualify? Same thing.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> he might not have done it. But. Oh, sure. Yeah, you're right.
2: That's right. Innocent until proven it's, guilty.
3: No, 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 no. That bastard's going down, man. And <laughs> all who sail with him. I will dance on his fucking grave.
0: You're kind of revealing a lot of the, we're here to ask, what's the appeal of true crime? And you've (laughs) demonstrated in graphic detail.
3: I'm revealing the grit of life, the grossness of humanity, without it being you. It's like being frightened when there's no real danger is fun. Being horrified when it's not you is kind of uh, rewarding on some prurient level, right?
0: Well, and apparently learning about the legal system, which I think is, depending on which thing you're watching seems to be the theme of several of them. I was just watching this Amanda Knox one. It wasn't a whole lot about the crime itself. It was more about the justice system and dealing with foreign countries in the justice system.
1: Was this a
3: documentary or was this the the movie with Hayden Panettiere that I watched? (laughs) I have not watched that documentary. I hear she mentioned Xena in the first bit because it's like really big in Italy. So she watches in the first five minutes or something she had to draw on the strength of Xena to get through. I have not seen the documentary, but I have read books about the Italian justice system. And I don't disbelieve that she could have been horribly set up by people who just don't give a shit. And and murder cases get drawn out over years and years and years. Things get put off. It's really horrible.
2: So she doesn't disbelieve that it could have happened. And that, I think, gets to the heart of the real issues with true crime is that we really don't know much of anything by the time we get to the end of any property we're watching. We'll listen to a story or we'll go through a podcast and we make some progress. But by the end, I feel like we still don't know anything more than when we started. We have a lot of information and I just kind of wish it was a television show where, you know, damn it, Columbo, tell me who did it. And by the time it's over, or actually with Columbo, by the time it's the credits are rolling in the beginning, we know who did it. But generally, it's just so different from, is a dramatic format from anything that we're used to seeing, where most of the time, at least we get to know what the story was and why people did things, even if they don't always get brought to justice. So In a lot of stories, people don't. But with true crime, often it's very unsatisfying to know what really happened.
1: However, you just made me start thinking, you know, in our last episode about video games... We talked about how it's not just about passively watching something, it's about being involved and getting to play a part in that. I think there is something to true crime, because I I feel like I'm, I'm a fan of the crime genre in general. It doesn't need to be true crime. But one of the articles that you've brought up, Brian, talks about serial.
0: It's The Ethical Dilemma of Highbrow True Crime by Alice Bullen, published in Vulture, August 2018.
1: Some of the problems with serials, a lot of people decided, "Oh yeah, I'm going to go solve this, and I'm going to go see if I can figure out who killed Heyman Lee, or try to prove Adnan's innocence." Rather than like just not knowing, it's like, "Ooh, this is still a cold case. I'm bored at home. What can I find out on my own?"
2: And I just listened to serial and. It was clear that even as it was being broadcast, information was coming to her between the first episode and the last one. And so it became this engine that fed itself of there was more to report on this case because she was doing this podcast. It was so interesting. I admit, after episode four I pulled up the Wikipedia page to see where things were.
3: Is he still in prison? Yeah. Jesus. In terms of audience satisfaction, people don't love cold cases and they don't love crimes that don't tie up, as you said, in a nice, neat 43 minutes. Also, anything that involves children is irksome because it makes you feel too dirty. But we love husbands and wives. We do. And it terrifies my husband that I love all this murder.
1: (laughs) I think I got the bug from my mom. She was always watching crime. My parents are both into suspense. My mom, particularly, into like crime. Mm -hmm. My dad couldn't really care about that. He likes like the cheeky cop dramas and comedies, you know. But he's nothing wrong with that. uh, No, nothing wrong with that.
0: (laughs) So it surprises me that there is this carryover between true crime and wrap it up in forty-three minutes, nice storybook crime, because it seems like the latter is sort of more escapist. It's like the reason that you would like any good, fast-paced story. And so having it actually, even if it was, you know, I was wondering if, if you had the very same story, and at the beginning of it, you said, this is reflective of true events, and and the other version, you don't do that, and the audience doesn't know either way what is the truth, whether you'd get any difference in enjoyment there. Because I would think that if it actually is reflecting true events, you have a different reaction because you're like, wow, things like this actually happen in the world, as opposed to like, yeah, okay, this is a little far-fetched, but I'm enjoying this.
3: Well, Stephen King, hello. I think Jack Olson was one of the great true crime writers, at, or the greatest to my mind, but I really still enjoy Stephen King with all his craziness, and I know it ain't true.
1: Yeah, I just think it needs to be a good story. Are you telling an interesting story that I well want to hear? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, I often quote Stephen King that I think it's in his book on writing where he says the quality of a piece of work is sort of the amount of truth per inch or something like that. And so the fact that he's saying that when he writes such fantastical stuff, obviously what he means, and this is just, you know, a general piece of literary theory that even if you're writing fiction, there has to be something that rings true about it, that the characters are acting in a way that is plausible, et cetera, et cetera. And so the horror there even though the situations themselves are fantastical, is clearly trying to channel real things that people are afraid of, real situations. You know, he writes a lot about domestic violence, about the evil that's actually in anybody's eyes that you might not know. They might seem innocent enough.
3: Yeah, he just sets you up to fall so badly, doesn't he? I really enjoyed Mr. Mercedes, and that was one of his least magical ones, you know. But I actually stopped and spoke to Twitter and said, oh my God, I really fear for the soul of the person who wrote this because I guess it's the truth quotient. It's like, he put that hideousness in me. He made my soul black for a moment. You know, like, where does that come from? But he's just a master.
2: And his Richard Bachman books tend to not be quite as fantastic. And in some ways they're harder to read because you're not shielded from it. I read Blaze, which was about a guy who had brain damage and tried to do some petty crime and things went horribly wrong when he tried to kidnap a child. And we don't have this buffer of a magic clown who's really a demon or a car that comes to life that kind of protects us from the reality of the horrible way people behave. It will say, Mark, to kind of talk about going between true crime and drama, I feel like good dramatization of True Crime seems to be a sweet spot for presenting it because you don't have to be true to everything, right? And you can distance,
3: as an audience, you can distance yourself from the truth of it too, right? We've got Zac Efron playing Bundy. I bet that'll outrank the Bundy tapes. I didn't actually watch it because I know a lot about him and I hate him, but I don't hate Efron.
0: (laughs) I actually just watched the Bundy tapes yesterday. I didn't get around to watching any of the Efron <laughs> as an example. And I, yeah, I found that a little torturous. I did watch Making a Murderer. I did enjoy that. Maybe not so much the second season, which was really getting deep into legal proceedings in appeals of appeals of appeals. But there's still a lot of interesting stuff in that. But I couldn't see the appeal of the Bundy one.
1: Yeah, I didn't even watch Making a Murderer season two because I heard from enough people that it wasn't quite as good. And I was like, well, Making Murder was really good until,
3: like, near the end, I was kind of like, meh. And I didn't watch it because, (laughs) giving all the reasons we didn't watch something, (laughs) it's like negative space. It's quite important, isn't it? I didn't watch it because I think it was a guy who looks guilty who isn't and who got fitted up for it and I can't stand. That puts a sense of injustice into me instead of, leaves me with a sense of injustice rather than a sense of justice, great, yay, I'm happy, bad guy gone. Yeah.
2: And I didn't watch it because I guess I just watched (laughs) The Office that day. I don't know.
3: (laughs) Oh, again, for the fifth time?
2: My first exposure to true crime, again, it was a dramatization. It was a 1983 TV miniseries called Fatal Vision with Gary Cole and Carl Malden. And it was about a Green Beret who had killed his family in the 70s and went to jail for it. And he had tried to make it seem like his house was broken into by drug addicts, but he was convicted of doing it. And he hired this guy to write a book about how he was innocent. And the guy in the process of interviewing the Green Beret became convinced he was guilty. And so he wrote this book called Fatal Vision and made this TV movie. And, you know, I was pretty young when I saw it and I just sort of took it for truth, right? I wasn't really making these distinctions when I was so young. So I walked away being fully convinced of, well, this is what happened. And this guy, killed his family and it's pretty easy to be seduced into thinking that what you're seeing is it says based on a true story but in your brain oh this is what happened and especially for a dumb kid it's fun to judge
3: if we don't even (laughs) care if we're wrong we just want to feel like
2: yeah fuck you (laughs) and it sure is easy
3: (laughs) or get him out yeah he's out
1: he didn't do it did you guys all listen to serial or see the series I didn't.
2: Yes, I listened to the first season in the last week.
1: And what did you think? Do you think he, he did it? He didn't do it?
2: I feel like I'm manipulated by the host to know what I know, and I'm sure I don't know enough. So. What about OJ, Brian? Oh, yeah, he did it.
3: <laughs> yeah. He, excuse me. He's out. <laughs> well, he got out. Got off. You're <laughs> supposed to say that.
0: Maybe we can get him on the show. We can uh, talk about Xena with him.
3: Is he out again? <laughs> After that no, no. Yeah, Vegas I think rep, so. I think he's out again. Yes. Yeah,
2: He is, and now he's on Twitter. So look out, Twitterverse.
3: Oh, <laughs> really? Are we going to look him up?
2: What Ooh. is his latest tweet? All right, let's take a minute to find out what he's saying on, on the Twitter.
1: <laughs> Do you know, though, when I was a kid, like I've always had such a big heart for like the underdog. I remember watching that whole thing go down and writing a letter to OJ that I intended to send to him telling him how much I enjoyed him in the Naked Gun movies, and then I didn't believe that he could do such a
3: thing, and I was worried about him.
2: Wow. What do we have there, Lucy? Uh, it's
3: O.J. Simpson's latest tweet is, I'm just a silly guy. Hashtag meme, hashtag O.J. Simpson, hashtag silly boy. And it's Ruby Wax, who is a, an American me, comedian, I- comedian who works in Britain, after we finished filming, O.J. said to me that uh, he had a surprise for me, and I genuinely was surprised. I think it was this idea of a joke, and this is it.
2: All right, so we'll link to that video for people. He's That's the- doing the psycho bit.
3: You're a silly boy. You're just a silly boy. He thought it seemly to put that on just to show what a jokey, funny guy he is. Wow, he's just a psychopath.
0: So I'm not sure if it's a positive or a negative thing that... Having these things in the, in the public unearths people's amateur legal theories. And what might be positive about it is the fact that these actually might get discussed and you could discover that they're wrong. The main thing that came out of Making it the Murderer is about the younger guy that was Brendan Dassey, that they show clearly that he was like, had a confession coerced out of him. And they showed you exactly how that works and what kind of mentality you might have to say something like that. And then once you understand that, that really changes your outlook, I think, on the legal system as a whole.
3: Yeah, it's appalling. I think they're understanding that phenomenon more and more. But man, you're in trouble, eh? The second that you admit to even some lesser thing because you just want to get out of there and get a lawyer to get you out properly, you're screwed. Mm -hmm. There's some super funny stuff people are writing in some Pretty funny things on um, the OJ's on feed. On the Twitter, on OJ's yeah. Twitter.
0: Responding to his silly boy comment.
3: <laughs> no, no, no. They're, they're sending things like crime scene photographs of the, the crime saying, um, hey, can you write my photograph? I'm an up-and-coming photographer. It's like,
2: it's the full, the full noise. So, Erica, can we post your letter? Did you save that?
3: No.
1: <laughs> I do remember sitting down and writing it. And I was really sad. And I remember telling my mom how sad I was. I mean, oh, you dear little child. I know, I was. (laughs) I I, I really, I thought I had his best interest at heart.
2: You see, I wrote him a letter too and it was, I saw you in Capricorn 1 and if you can lie about landing on Mars, I think you're really lying about killing these two people. So, you know, it just depends what movie you watched of O.J. Simpsons.
1: I think sometimes watching crime shows reveals a little something about yourself as well or, you know, whether it's true crime or not. But I remember as a kid, I would always worry about the underdogs. I would always worry that Somebody was being accused of something and they were being falsely
3: accused. Should worry about that.
1: Yeah. And it's, yeah, that's a true phenomenon. But like, then it's funny as I've gotten older, the reason I asked about the Adnan Syed thing was, I think, I don't know, but I think that he might be guilty. But that's like adult Erica's eyes. Like as a child, I would be absolutely, he didn't do it. Adult me is like no. He, more than likely, he probably did it, but I still don't think he should be in prison because I think that the justices did a disservice during his trial, and so therefore, like I think they bungled a lot of stuff, and therefore he should be out. Maybe I don't think he's it a bad is person. Inadmissible,
3: yeah. of a poison tree Yeah, kind of evidence.
1: Yeah, but I don't know that he's. I think he still might be guilty. Whereas, like the younger me would be like, no, I'm sure they're all good people. Look how nice they look, and I was totally drawn in by that. So it's interesting to think you know like how we see it as a kid
3: versus as an adult, okay, what about the staircase? Oh, that was a good one, man. that was a good
1: one.
0: I did not see that one I've heard good things. I was looking at what to prep here, and I was a question of watching a couple of movie link things or watching you know a ten hour series, <laughs> so I opted against the ten hour series okay,
3: but well, you're a busy man, but if you <laughs> ever it's a good one because you will be confounded by your reactions. Like you're going to go, he did, he didn't. Oh my God, I don't think he did. And then you go, oh shit, you totally did. And then they go, the owl, the owl. And you're like, what? It could have been an owl, you know? (laughs) But you go on such a journey. And yes, you may be manipulated, but it's an amazing journey of this guy is a real, he's quite a piece of work, whether he did it or not. He's an odd cat man. Yeah.
2: And if I could just disagree with Lucy, um,
3: Mark is not a busy man.
2: (laughs) That's all. That's all I got. <laughs> one of the ones I did watch in
0: preparation for this that just came out is called "I Love You Now Die" about Michelle Carter, who was 17 and urged her boyfriend to kill himself. And so,
3: wait, is this a podcast or a docu series?
0: This was a documentary. It was on HBO, I think. Oh, I'm so excited. That sounds good. <laughs> the good thing about this one is almost everything is recorded via text message. But it's kind of like the Mueller report. Like you got to read (laughs) – there's no way you can read all (laughs) these messages because it's like a a solid year of them texting each other just all the time. And so they kind of really give a balanced – it feels like it feels less manipulative than some of the other ones because it's just giving you sort of selections. In fact, the whole first part is kind of from the prosecutor's – just like the trial, from the prosecutor's point of view where she's actually urging him and how she's bragging to her friends She was such a needy person and she wanted attention from her friends and that's why she got her boyfriend to do this. But then the whole second half is like, oh, well, he had four suicide attempts before. He was very dominating over her in their early exchanges and like, if you tell anybody about this, then I'm going to drop you and how she urged him against suicide for the longest time but then had a turnaround right at the end and kind of realized this is what he wants. Every day is a torture for him and like was actively trying to be supportive. There's still some unknowns in terms of like even the crucial bit of she texted somebody that she told him to get back in the car that was filling with carbon monoxide, but that was not texted. That was part of a phone call. It was just her account of it texting to somebody else, whereas she obviously lied in texting to other people so many times (laughs) that it's unclear why one would pick that thing as being accurate.
2: I followed that story in the news as it was breaking, and it just made me tremendously sad. Sometimes the idea of re-immersing myself in some of these things, I'm not sure what I'm going to get out of it.
3: Oh, the parents too. Both the sets of parents are just like, why did we not know any of this? I mean, I knew, no they knew some, but kids do hide a lot. My God, I've been writing stories for a, so, uh, something and um, realizing how many things I did not tell my parents about. You know, if my brothers were sniffing blue or doing, like, no, there was no telling on somebody but, compulsion to remain stumm was really high.
2: Well, you heard it here first. Lucy Lawless is working on a project. So we broke that news. That's a pretty much <laughs> pop exclusive. Something's going to happen in the future. Maybe. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, something probably won't happen because nothing's worse and harder than freaking writing. It's gross.
0: Actually, the part that I like least about that documentary was they had to go on and on at the beginning. You feel like, for it not to be exploitative, you want to stress the victims and how unjust it was that they were taken from the earth. But it's almost by definition, especially in something like the Bundy thing or something, that the victims are sort of regular, good people. So that story, as much as you feel like, I don't want to piss the family off when I'm making my documentary, so I have to include 20 minutes of people praising the victim, but it's utterly uninteresting. In terms of like what people are there to see in the story. What do you think about that sort of dual responsibility to please the audience, but also...
3: Does it not reveal the parents' pain and how little they understood? Doesn't it reveal anything about the relationship of the kid in the home environment or anything? Or no, it's just a bit of a wank.
0: You could do it for that. They had the same thing with Making a Murderer. I mean, they had, what, 10 hours or whatever to fill there. So there was quite a bit about what a wonderful person the victim was. And I'm sure she was, but it's not kind of the nature of this kind of thing. If it was random, I'm, you know, in this, I love you now die thing. It was the characters of those two people and their environment, including their relationship with their parents, as you say, that did end up with the situation. But if it's like a murderer picking somebody at random or something, then by definition, the person's story before this happens is not going to be part of the same narrative as what was going on with the killer.
3: Oh, my gosh.
1: You know, speaking of which, when we're talking about real people and serial killers, I'm going to reference this Forbes article by Sarah Watts. What one researcher discovered about America's true crime obsession. I found this particularly interesting because I think it's very true, or at least it applies to me. They quote, compared to men, women liked reading about the psychological content of true crime stories. Stories where a killer was interviewed by an FBI profile or that you're trying to get to the inner workings of a killer in some way. This researcher found that women were more likely to read true crime books if the victim in the story was female. And the conclusion was that women all seem to like reading about survival, whether it was preventing or surviving a crime. She's saying subconsciously to be interested in true crime is to want to learn how to prevent it. And I think there is some truth to that. To know the threats that are out there and how can you best avoid them. I mean, I, I watched a ton of this stuff as a kid, you know, Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted and Cold Case. And I was fascinated by the character of those types of people. And I think that maybe did make me a keener judge of character as I went along. And the kind of people that seem really great on the outside and they have something deep and dark on the inside. Like you said about yourself, Mark, in our intro. <laughs>
0: <laughs> did I? That was not the gist of that.
1: So specifically. Lucy's here so she can see my fingernails. They're not in the worst shape ever. But I've never had nice fingernails. And I used to blame it on the fact that when I was a kid, I watched one where the serial killer was profiling women based on like how well they were kept, and they all had really nice manicures. And I was like, well, I'm never doing my nails. <laughs> like, it's going to prevent all of the serial killers from wanting me.
3: <laughs> yeah. And also puzzles, crime solving. Like, we love knowing how the choline or whatever the hell it's called, glycol, ethanol, choline metabolizes in the body, and they might not find it at this stage, but it's going to appear as such. And like you love all that kind of detection stuff. Yeah. And also interrogations. I love watching interrogations, because you're seeing somebody, same reason I'd watch crime, on the most intense day of their lives, or mm. presumably, and prevention, and a sense of justice, if indeed it wraps up.
2: I will admit, Erica, I don't, find true crime as interesting as you. So maybe that article is applying to me also equally well. Talking about interrogation, that's something that occurs to me a lot when I am watching it. Putting myself in the shoes of, if I were truly innocent and being interrogated, just how would I do? I feel like I would categorically be doing worse than anyone I've ever seen interrogated ever. But just my... Outrage or my apoplectic fear or whatever would be all I would be managing.
3: No, really? Outrage is good. No, outrage is good. <laughs> you know, like innocent people who aren't psychopaths who have studied innocent people would be going, I didn't fucking do it. I know you didn't do it. You got nothing on me because I didn't do it. That is how a normal person would behave. But you watch all those ones like Chris Watts and all those people because they're trying to outsmart, they're way too quiet and manipulative. Unless, like uh, what I learned about myself, watching people in court, you learn that you really cannot tell a brilliant liar. Like on the witness stand, if they have been raised to lie as a matter of survival, they are as cool as cucumbers and you can't detect. There's no tells because they might be psychopaths, but lying is a survival technique. They've had all their lives and they're so far ahead of the rest of us. So it really takes great police evidence to nail some people.
2: Now, this may not be a skill you have, but from what I've seen of the first episode of your show, is that maybe a skill that Alexa Crow has, because she's kind <laughs> of a superhero, as far as I can tell.
3: Yeah, yeah. Alexa Crow, she figures shit
2: out. My life is murder.
3: Coming soon to Acorn, which does all those high-quality British things.
2: Acorn TV, August 5th in the US and Canada. And actually, today that we're recording, it premiered in Australia.
3: I played it wrong in that first episode, though I have just castigated myself watching it because it was, when you're doing the first episode, you literally do not know what your character is or where it's going. So I, anyway, it gets better and better. Woody, how do you think yeah. you oh, you can't talk about it? Well.
1: I'm interested you simply in draw,
3: draw your eye to it. <laughs> <that> <laughs> when he gives some specious defense of, you know, some alibi, she's clearly a little caught off guard. And I think a really good liar, like the criminals I've seen on the witness stand, they're just so relaxed. They're they're never caught off guard because they're freaking psychopaths and nothing you say makes a dent in them. They just flip and flop and wiggle around and they're very finessed.
0: So I feel like I'd also be very terrible at being interrogated, at least before having seen these things and knowing what to watch out for, because I would be very uh, self-reflective and my memory is fallible. Maybe something happened. Like, it is actually a recurring worry that I have. Like, have I done something really horrible in my past and suppressed it? There's no way that I can really oh, tell.
1: Mark, I feel exactly <laughs> the same way. I would be exactly the same way. But
3: they learn in interrogations, like detectives learn at detective school, <laughs> that some people, like me, for example, do not remember dates, do not remember timelines at all, but they will be consistent. So if you get them to jump around, they will consistently not be able to do that, whereas people who are lying will be caught out by the way they jump around the timeline. So it's okay for you to have deficits in the way that you might recall things as long as you're consistent. Then it's like, oh, well, he's just type A or type G or whatever.
1: So really this true crime discussion has turned into, if you've committed a crime, Lucy (laughs) Lawless will tell you, How to get past
3: how to beat the rat.
2: (laughs) This is a PSA for psychopaths. That's right. I
0: just I get such a deep pit in my stomach, even when I'm like stopped for a speeding ticket or I offend someone on the internet or something, like I just I would not not perform well. (laughs) I'm such a silly boy. Oh Hashtag
3: silly boy
0: (laughs) You were saying, Erica, that this seems to educate you in terms of knowing what to look out for, does it not also exaggerate the threat that's out there? That it makes it seem much more likely that you will be targeted by a serial killer than is in fact the case and maybe make you live an overly paranoid life needlessly?
1: Oh, for sure. A friend of mine just shared with me a graph like on Facebook and I read in the things that you're most likely to be killed by. It's like heart disease and Alzheimer's, like car crashes, things like that. And homicide is just such a small percentage. I mean, I don't think I live my life like that. For as much as I enjoy this genre, I am so trusting of people. It's ridiculous. And I get in trouble from my friends and my husband all the time. They're like, you did what? Their favorite one. I was, in, I was on tour with Once the Musical. I was in Utah and there was this really cool house and i was just staring at the house and there was this old man outside who was taking out the trash and i said this is a really beautiful home this is like looks like a mid century home and he's like yeah yeah I, he said i used to be an architect i'm a retired architect and i built this home do you want to see inside and i said yeah i would love to see inside so we walked inside he showed me it it was so
3: beautiful he said here's a string trick <laughs> just put your hands in here <laughs> see my clown pictures <laughs>
1: it it was great and I was like careful as I went inside I was like looking around and I was making sure I was near enough to an exit that I would be fine but this guy was probably like 85 years old so I wasn't really nervous and then I left and I called my husband I was like I did the coolest thing I met this guy and he was so nice and like he told me all about his artist friends and how he was an architect and he like knew some like famous designers of that time period and he was like
3: I would really prefer you not going into people's houses by yourself. Hey, I found a cool thing today. This website's called Big Think, Smarter Faster. And the um, headline is, here are the U.S. states with the highest prevalence of psychopaths. Where would you say they are, guys? People with the highest number of psychopathic traits.
2: I have a guess based on lack of sunlight. I'm going to go with Alaska.
3: Really? Where is the most psychopathic state? Florida.
2: Florida. All right, so Florida then. I'm going to go with the opposite of Alaska. Oh,
3: that's a good one. Alabama. Maine. What? Yep, Washington, D.C., but Maine, yeah. District of Columbia, of course, because that's where you have so many lawyers. Oh, God, yeah. Because, you know, psychopathic behavior is very rewarded in commerce and law because you have no qualms about doing dodgy things, right? right? So, yeah, Maine was number one. It goes Maine, Connecticut, New York, Maryland, Massachusetts, wow. Delaware, Wyoming, New Jersey. So the northeast has the highest prevalence. And it doesn't mean full blow on true psychopaths, but people with the highest number of concentration of
1: California's right after that, which that was one of my thoughts as well.
2: Well, we haven't had a lot of mail yet, but at least we're going to start getting some hate mail from Alaska and Florida and Alabama and, and all these nice states that we just...
3: Only from, only from the <laughs> psychos. The other's like, oh my God, you're telling us? You think we don't know that? It's not my fault. It's the big I'm them.
0: So I was interested in reading one of the articles was The Bloody History of the True Crime Genre by Pamela Berger, 2016. And she talks about the crime pamphlets that were a big thing going back to like 1550 to 1700. Yes. What a big deal these were and how, of course, when this is pointed out, how this kind of blended into the kind of panic that went into the Salem witch trials.
2: I keyed in on a sentence in that article that reads, as literacy rates expanded and new print technologies emerged, topical leaflets began to circulate among newly literate and semi-literate consumers. What's a semi-literate consumer? I feel like we're kind of devolving back with oh, let's say with the advent of podcasts into people who not that they can't read, but they don't. So blame us for that.
1: Do we really need to anymore? I, I mean, mean uh, Audible.com, yeah.
2: but I can see if you can't read much, you can read this. This has a real broad appeal to someone who's a not much of a reader, right? It's so visceral. What are other things that were being printed, right? It was the news or it was religious tracts? I mean, yeah, I'll take the true crime pamphlets over that any day.
3: And fairy tales, you know, because they're often cautionary, right? To keep the kids from running off into the woods with right. the wolf. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But yes...
0: Yeah, exactly. That's what I was talking about with the wish thing, that all these things seem to blur into each other, just horror in general. Yeah,
1: I think a lot of them are cautionary tales. I think that that is why we like to learn from them. Although, one of the articles was talking about the difference between true crime and horror films, right? And how one is kind of like funny, like horror films always have like... A little camp. Yeah, yeah, a little camp in them. We don't have that with the true crime. Hopefully, I guess. That'd be kind of dark,
0: Well, that's what I was wondering. I think it was the Why Do Women Love True Crime that was just in the New York Times, Kate Tuttle just yesterday, that focuses on how a lot of these podcasts and things are funny. (laughs) These true crime podcasts.
1: I don't connect as
3: much with the funny part.
0: Neither do I. Actually, I'm just like,
3: shut the hell up. I just want to hear the story. Yeah. There's a terrifying podcast um, called Case File from Australia, and this quote-unquote anonymous narrator goes through it with this really flat Australian accent just, and it makes you feel so scared and so isolated as he tells these stories with no inflection whatsoever, but they're really brilliant. Mm. And then there is, I think one of the oldest podcasts is True Murder with Dan Zupansky. Have you guys heard that? No. That is some creepy shit, man. He is unsparing and he interviews writers about their books, but he's clearly read them. I find his actually the the scariest of all and I don't always have the stomach for it. But um True Murder. True Murder with Dan Zupansky.
2: Is that one American?
3: It's Canadian.
2: Canadian. Just think how scary it would be with an Australian accent. The scariest of accents.
3: I reckon creepy shit happens in places that are really cold or really hot. Like tons of cannibals and things, right? The Russians have always got like cannibals all over the place. (laughs) Up in Canada, he tells one about Stanley's so-and-so who ate this poor kid on a top of a Greyhound bus crossing like Saskatchewan or something and how they it's, it's, it's Scariest stuff. And he's got, they've got the mother of the boy talking, you know. He just fell asleep and woke up being eaten. By the time they got the cops there, he was like halfway through.
1: Oh my God.
2: I'm feeling better about my Alaska (laughs) guest now. That's good.
1: (laughs) That was quick,
3: Brian. I don't mean to laugh about that because that was really one of the most, I guess you laugh to defray tension, right?
2: What is that comedy one, Mark? You recommended and I just got one that recommended to me again today by my brother. My favorite murder.
0: Apparently there are several that are kind of like that, having a lighter tone or something, wine and murder.
3: Oh my God, you guys, everything is on um, YouTube. Like the Chris Watts thing is absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. My very favorite guy to listen to is Scott Reich of crime talk, because he's a defense lawyer who breaks things down and he really educates you about the justice system and, where things really stand, away from the hysteria. The word is from lawyers that what is reported is not accurate to what's going on in the court. I don't know, maybe people aren't quite educated into the proper law process, but what we're hearing from journalists is not reflective of what lawyers say is the truth. Hmm.
0: It was wine and crime was the one I was looking at. I will...
3: Wine and crime? Yes. That doesn't sound like us at all, does it? <laughs>
1: What? (laughs) (laughs) You guys wish you were here having wine with us discussing crime.
0: I am jealous, yes. Although then I would have had to dress better to be in public with people, so.
3: Do you know what the Chris Watts murder is, you guys? uh, Murders is? Tell us. He's the dude from Colorado who murdered not only his pregnant wife, but his two little girls. Mm -hmm. And his... Loading them up in the car was partially recorded by the neighbors, the camera on his door, you know, doorbell camera. Mm -hmm, I guess mm -hmm. people have that in Colorado. And he took the little girls out and put them in these oil batteries, and they're like 20, 25 feet high, great big kind of silos for oil. And he stuffed these little girls, not even in the same one. He stuffed them, and the hole is only eight inches big. I don't know how he got these little girls down it. Just how... The insanity of him doing all of that he did over the course of hours, there no crime of passion. It was just the most bloody-minded, cold act, because he obviously had another girlfriend, and uh, it's all Good. on tape and all the texts and so much evidence. So it's a really fleshed-out story.
1: Yeah, I don't know about this one, but we do have a lot of murders
0: here. That's pretty recent.
3: He's been in jail like a year, yeah.
0: We haven't really come straight against the moral question, which is maybe a good thing to wrap up here. <laughs> is it morally vile in some way to enjoy telling these stories, hearing these stories, or does it kind of just depend on what story it is and how it's told? And that's kind of the feeling I get. I think we're
3: hardwired.
0: That we want to hear, even though we may be repulsed by some of the details, that we want to hear that this stuff has happened.
3: We're hardwired for stories, especially ones that may educate us as to our own survival, right?
0: How does that Chris Watts one educate you about your own possible survival?
3: Because you realize it's about people who are seemingly so nice. And he came across as being so gentle and kind of passive and everything. And you just can't believe that human beings, they call him a covert narcissist. So basically you can lift him up and stuff him in a little cubby hole and feel better about if I ever meet somebody who's that passive and that nice be on guard because they're not being authentic and there's something scary under there. You want to know what underpins certain behaviors, right? Absolutely. My
1: mother is not as trusting as I am, but I feel like part of the reason I'm trusting is because of her and the way she raised me, which is funny because even though she told me to love and trust people in a certain way, she also gave me the other part of the information, which was, I don't ever remember not knowing. I'm going to bring it up for the third time in this podcast. what child rape was. Yikes. I've always known. She told us from a very young age, like what kind of thing to watch out for and what kind of people to watch out for. And she said, always be wary of people who want to be around kids and choose to spend all their time around kids, which is funny because she actually spent her time around kids. But she's like, if you ever see anybody at the what, uh,
3: park?
1: park, yeah. <laughs> if you're out at the park, I had too much wine, Lucy, if you're out at the park and there's too a like, fill- like somebody just hanging, <laughs> hanging out. Yeah. Let me know,
3: because you can't trust that. And I taught my children, adults do not ask children for help. If somebody says, I've lost my puppy, that's a no. You get away as fast as possible, because I've heard about those things, so I want to protect my children against predation.
2: I feel like I had to learn this from different strokes.
3: (laughs) That show was cursed.
2: (laughs) It's an interesting lesson, because it's true, but I'm not sure how valuable it is, that anybody can be a monster. It's good to remember that anybody can be a monster, but I think most people aren't. I'm not sure what to do with that most of the time. As a male who's less likely to be a victim of this, maybe I can be more cavalier about that. In terms of the value of this, maybe not as entertainment, but bearing witness to what a victim goes through. You don't need to do it maybe watching a movie and having... You know the dramatization. I feel a little less true to that. You know, having uh, David Schwimmer as Kardashian. I mean, oh, it's like, oh, right. It's I felt like a little I, sad about that, didn't you? You know, that whole show just made me feel weird. But you know, really, to like understand that these really are people and they did suffer, and it's partly why I don't really watch a lot of these or consume them. Is they do make me sad and they make me uncomfortable, and it's valuable too. And sometimes I have to be pushed into doing it, but it's never what I gravitate to.
3: Hmm. Yeah, because it's yucky. It's jolly yucky. Sorry to digress, but the thing about David Schwimmer, I feel he took that moment of Kardashian right after the not guilty verdict where he looked completely bewildered and he built a whole character of bewildered Kardashian all the time. I can't imagine that a man who was married to Mrs. Chris. Could have been that dumb, or maybe, but I can't imagine that he spent his whole life being bewildered, so I don't know. I just feel like maybe David could have made a different choice. Maybe they cut the other choices. Yeah, maybe maybe Dre said, no, no other choices. What's my motivation? Same.
1: You
2: seem to have watched more than one episode, which is more than I can say. How did
3: I see it?
1: I think there can also be a little something else, too, which I'm going to talk about very quickly, some Battlestar Galactica, the morals there, which is, like, it reminds us how precious life is i think there's a bit of it that's like oh any of us could go at any moment yes there's also a cautionary tale with that but also if you go it could be my husband it could be my parent it could be the person next door
3: so who does what i'm not following who could murder you moida <laughs> moida
2: most foul,
3: <laughs> most foul. um
2: Yeah, anybody could be a Cylon, really. I mean, among those of us on the podcast, one of us knows a lot about Battlestar Galactica. And of course, I'm referring to myself. But, oh, wait a second, one of us actually played a Cylon. So maybe we should kick it over to number three.
3: Except I would just show up for work and go, what are my words today? Oh, okay, I'll do that. I wouldn't question it at all. So you actually do know more about the law than I do.
1: That part of it, that death is what
3: gives life meaning.
0: And you're right, if we realize life is fleeting, that leads us immediately to watch 20 hours of making a murderer.
3: Yeah, good point. Okay, so you recommend the first season. Is he the guy, the bearded yeah. gray guy? Is he not guilty? I
1: think I remember
3: feeling like he probably wasn't. Because he looks like a guilty guy. Yeah. Right? He looks like somebody you want to blame pin that's something wh- on, right? Yeah.
0: There's definitely issues with the investigation. Right? Yeah, for sure. Let's, let's put oh, it at least that's that way. So if
2: you want 20 hours with no resolution, go... <laughs> Watch that program.
1: Yeah, I also wouldn't recommend watching the serial documentary on HBO because you're also left with like, okay, I know about as much as I did after listening to the podcast, but I just got it rehashed with no real new information.
3: i got to recommend to you guys, sorry to drone on about Chris Watts, but he gets nailed within hours of having done it by her girlfriend who's like, no, my girlfriend would not not show up at a doctor. He gets apprehended by the police the same day he kills them. So you won't have that frustration. It's just a brilliant exploration of human psychology and what we're capable of, even when we look cute and passive.
0: (laughs) That's why I think it's, again, so hard to generalize over these things because, Ultimately, the reason that some of these are appealing is because they're good stories. And that could come in such a variety of ways that it could be the mystery of it. It could be learning about the legal system. It could be frustration with the legal system. It could be this could happen to you. It could be just the drama or the what's going on in this very strange killer or other transgressor's mind. Clearly, there are some of these that I would point to and say, this is trash. And anybody who likes this, there's probably something wrong with them. I think the ones that are critically acclaimed, there's probably a reason for that, like that they're just good stories. Whether they're still exploitative in some way, you know, again, I guess depends on the story in particular. I think at least ones that are made now, that are well-made, are very cognizant
2: of that possibility. And so they try very hard not to be exploitative. Though hanging a lampshade on it doesn't necessarily make it not the case.
3: The um, fascination of aberrant behavior is we're magnetized towards it.
2: Any last thoughts, Erica?
1: I don't know. I'm just having a great time talking so, about true crime with Luther. Any
2: recommendations of what we should watch since we all said a bunch of things we weren't watching? <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of stuff has come up already the staircase
0: and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say if you're not going for true crime, you're just going pure crime. Luther's one of the best. Oh, and Luther's it's amazing. Terrifying.
0: Obviously,
3: my life is murder, which is not terrifying, but a lovely sense of justice because the world is pretty bloody grim right now. But I want to recommend Crime Talk on YouTube with Scott Reich. That is, if you're interested in the justice system and how it looks at cases and interrogations, he breaks it down for you really beautifully. He's highly recommended.
2: So those 30 for 30 sports parodies, they were done on College humor. And so it's if Angels in the Outfield happened for real, or if Rocky Four happened for real. And so all these things are tied together in the same universe. And it's the same stupid sports cliches with people saying, Well, you could never make a movie about that. It's so crazy. But of course, these are all based on movies they created. They did a really nice job with them. And they went on to do American Vandal, which is this true crime about guys drawing dick pics in high school, right?
1: Yes, I was going to talk about that. It's the same guys.
0: That's a nice one to end on.
1: Oh, it's fantastic.
0: It's a nice parody. I didn't watch season two. It was a little too much. Oh, so. so you've seen it. So good, Mark? Yeah, yeah. No, I thought season one was very good kind of like the genre it is parodying, like the whole story could have been told in half the time. And that's kind of what's frustrating about the documentary. Like we could have a whole episode just on the music used for these documentaries and how sort of aggravatingly manipulative they try to be in this, oh, this tension is great. Like I almost prefer leaving it deadly silent. But if your point is to spoof reality show documentary type things, then yes, this does it very well.
3: What was the sport one you recommended, Brian?
2: It was the same guys who... And I think they did it on YouTube, all these fake 30 for 30 ESPN documentaries.
3: So this is the way to hook guys. You link it into sports. Is that it? There you go.
2: Maybe. Yeah, that sounds about right. Because I believe that
3: ID Channel is number one cable channel in the world for women. Hmm. Because I just had lunch with Henry Schleif today, who's like the head of it. And he's always wanting to do something with me. And I was like, yeah, I'd like to do it. But my acting career is not over yet. So I'll just hold off on that, Henry. But um, he started Court TV and all that stuff, which is where I first got hooked on. Oh, some fabulous cases like the Shauna Nelson case. Also in Colorado, I think. Lots of crazy stuff. I see cold places. Mm -hmm. And the Mark Jensen one, poisoning his wife with antifreeze. And, anyway, just good stories with weird permutations and twists and turns.
1: I actually do have one to quickly... Mommy Dead and Dearest hbo yeah,
0: oh i watched that yesterday
1: yeah did, you watch, did you watch it on hbo because there's also a prime series based on the same story no
0: no the hulu one is called the act and that's a dramatization
1: is that right. with the little girl the munchausen yes Ah, oh, so disgusting yes yeah. so that happened where my family lives where yep springfield missouri i didn't know them but i have friends who knew that you kind them. of have the same act you have the same accent oh my god Do it's I? the little girl Yeah, That only happens when I've drunk a little bit. What was her name? Gypsy Rose. Gypsy
3: Rose. Yeah, oh my.
0: Can you do the the Gypsy Rose voice?
3: I would never put that kid in jail. She said herself, she was imprisoned by her mother, the Munchausen's by proxy, Mm -hmm. and made her, did all those operations on her? Yeah, awful.
1: She was tortured. Shit, man. So, yeah, I would recommend looking into that story. Yeah, there's a lot. Going back to what you talked about in the very beginning with the voir I got called in for jury service earlier this year, and they did ask everybody, like, do you know somebody who's been convicted of a crime? And then they also asked us if we know anybody in law enforcement. And I was one of those people who was like, yeah, if they ask me this, I'm like, yes and yes. You know, I had one uncle who was in law enforcement and another who was in prison and got sent to Vietnam for a second tour because he was running drugs across the border. And then- other family members who've been convicted of other crimes. And I went to my husband afterwards, and I was like, why did no one else raise their hands? I don't understand why more people don't know people who've committed crimes and or been
3: convicted. Knowing, or knowing someone in law enforcement. Well,
1: yeah, well, that one I guess more people did, but not right. the other side of it. And my husband's like, I think that is a bit unique to you. <laughs>
3: not in Louisiana, man. In poor communities, it's far that's the more thing. crime. I'm from a very... Poor area yeah, that's, so. that's the number one indicator of likelihood to experience crime is, is poverty and yeah of criminality yeah. all
0: right well thank you so much Lucy for joining us
3: oh my pleasure thank you for having me Erica thank you for coming oh thanks for having me
0: Lucy it was great to meet you so long listeners bye
3: yeah ta-da everybody a reservoir
1: bye
0: Do you want more Lucy? The bonus content for this episode includes a continuation of the discussion with Lucy where she goes seriously off topic. She's a delight to be around. If you want to hear more of us talking to her, go to patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. A mere $1 donation will get you access to that and bonus content for all the rest of the episodes. Thanks. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network. Please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com. And it's also presented by openculture.com. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com.